This episode brought to you by Audible, your audio book source with over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. And today you can receive a free audiobook and 30-day free trial by visiting audibletrial.com slash sports. So don't wait. That's audibletrial.com slash sports for your free audiobook and 30-day free trial. Listen to your audiobook anywhere, anytime. Taking sports to another level. Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Exploring the latest headlines and going behind the scenes with in-depth interviews. Hearing personal stories and the impact of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. What time is it? This is episode 40. I am your host, Richmond Weaver, and glad you're listening through whatever format that might be. And thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. Our guest is legendary cyclist George Hincappy. And if you've missed any other episodes, make sure you go to our website, richtakeonsports.com, and there you can find the past episodes, you can find the current episode, you can find any information about the podcast, and you can also subscribe directly from there on any platform, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and don't forget, you can find us on iHeartRadio, and we're looking at some other platforms as well, so stay tuned for that information. And if you want to follow us on Twitter, follow at Rich Take Sports, and also you can send direct feedback, comments, anything that you want via email, Richmond at richtakeonsports.com. It's time now for the Rich Spotlight. Shining brightly to share the stories of people in sports. This is the Rich Spotlight. Sometimes in life, you're just fortunate because of timing or where you just happen to live. And this is so true for episode 40, as our guest is legendary cyclist George Hincappy, who just happens to live in the same hometown as me. And that's here in Greenville, South Carolina. So we got to do this interview in person. Now, George is a former professional cyclist who is a 17-time Tour de France finisher, five-time Olympian, and arguably the greatest domestique in road cycling history. And for any of you listeners that aren't familiar with the term domestique, it's a rider who works for the benefit of his team and leader rather than trying to win the race himself. Now in French, it just simply translates to servant. And George was actually known as a super domestique because he was so accomplished. And Lance Armstrong has even been quoted as saying that George is the greatest teammate in history. For our time together, as I mentioned, here in Greenville, George was gracious enough to invite me into his home where I also got to meet his wife, Melanie. And I can tell you there's no doubt that she's been able to put her personal touches on the house because it's absolutely beautiful. And one of the things that we started talking about was just the travel involved as a professional rider. And they spend a lot of time in Europe, so there's a lot of air travel. And I know from traveling a lot myself that it's a badge of honor to obtain this ultra elite level of mileage. And that's the 
million miler, which can be a good or a bad thing, to be honest with you. But as much as I knew George has traveled a lot in the air, I wanted to know, has he ever sat down and calculated how many miles he's ridden on a bike in his entire career and maybe even hitting a million miles? On my bike? That's a, that's a great question. I know that I've calculated my Tour de France miles at one point, and that was... Um, I can't, now I can't think of it, but it was several times around the world um, because I did 17 Tour de France's and every Tour de France is 3,000 miles. So it was, it was several times around the world. Um, but in terms of overall mileage, I have no idea. That's a great question. I'll have to get back to you on that one. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That might take you a while to yeah, calculate that take out, a while, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Nowadays, you can, every, you know, we, we have our own team and uh, our riders have to send in their training every day and you, you can really you can really keep track of your riders and there's technology now that tracks your rides and you send them in you know, upload, upload all the mileage all the efforts you put in but back when I was starting it was just you know some guys wrote it down in a notebook but I wasn't that type of person that wrote it down so I'd have to do a pretty um, big guesstimate to, to come up with that, that sort of um, distance that I did throughout my career. So now how do you think that would have affected your training and success later on if you would have had this type of technology today back when you started. You know what? I think I'm happy with the way I had it because it works two ways now. It's really great to be able to track your training and to measure your performance. But at the same time, for many riders, many young, talented riders, it also takes away the most important thing about sports, which is your feeling. You know, the sense of feeling of how hard you can push um, when, when that moment where you really need to get everything you can out of your body. And a lot of riders now say, well, shit, I, I, I can't do this kind of wattage. I can't do this in training. But in a race, when you have everything on the line, people can push a lot harder than they can in training. So it works. It, it's, it's generally a, a very good tool, but at some, for some riders, it inhibits their performance as well. So I think for me, it was really good not to have it early on because I, I, I my, my sense of feeling, um, and being able to push beyond the limits was never limited by the numbers. It was more of like, I got to do this. I have to make this happen. And I never really watched the numbers growing up. So as, as I progressed throughout my career, it became an important tool to my training, but I never really let it affect my racing. Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't watch it during racing because it was just in racing. You're not controlling your, your efforts. Your, your efforts are controlled by, by a 200 person Peloton. And, you know, it's, uh, while it's helpful, it's, it can't, you can't let it limit you either. Yeah, so it could be a good or a bad thing, yeah, exactly. depending on how you utilize it. And now so many young riders are obsessed with their watts, their numbers, their power that, um, you know, Bobby Julik is our performance director now. We talk about it all the time is, yeah, the numbers are super important, but it's also um, being able to, 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 to race on instinct as well is, is, is just as important as numbers. So... Going back to when that instinct started for you, I know in your book, The Loyal Lieutenant, which you released in 2014, you talk about your earliest memory on the bike, and that was actually with your sister and her bike with a banana seat and a basket on the front. And when you had that moment of taking the training wheels off and now feeling the freedom of that, was that the moment when it hit you that the joy and the passion of being on the bike or was it later on it was definitely later on for me i i, I, I obviously clearly remember that memory um and uh, as as i progressed from training wheels to going riding with my dad um my dad would always kind of just 
it was it was mandatory thing to do with him on the weekends is to go for a ride with him. And at first, I didn't really appreciate it or want to. I just wanted to be a normal kid and sit around and watch cartoons. Um, so it was funny. My my eight, nine, ten year old years, it was more of oh no, I got to go up and ride on the weekends no matter what. <laughs> um, um, but then as I became 12, 13 years old and I started racing and being successful racing, then it became an obsession. And, uh, you know, I never turned back from there. So what about other sports? No, I didn't really play many other sports. In fact, um, you know, I had one year where I wanted to play football and my dad was like, absolutely not. I was like 16 years old. Um, I wanted to be the cool kid in high school. Didn't, and uh, he, was, he was not supporting that at all, which I appreciate now that he didn't let me do that. Um, but... Um, so I basically just bike my whole life, and now I'm I'm super into all kinds of sports. I play tennis. I love tennis. I love watching other sports. I have a great appreciation for all sorts of sports now. So what about uh, that feeling of being on a bike? How is that so different being on the bike versus some of the other sports now that you're you know playing tennis and that? How is it well, different? Um, it's I just have a now that I on the when you're when you're when you're a cyclist at the professional level it's it's life consuming you can only even if you walk for a long time you get sore because your muscles are only used to pedaling so and it's all about training training and resting um, so you really don't have a chance to experience of course nowadays you um, professional cyclists really take care of their core and they do some some uh, minimum weightlifting to really have a strong core to be able to be balanced on the bike. But in terms of any other kind of sports, running or, you know, tennis or whatever, you, you just cannot do as a cyclist. So it's great now that I have, that I'm not racing anymore and my performance doesn't really matter on the bike, that I can do other sports like tennis. And I, I actually feel like I'm a much better balanced athlete now that I'm able to, even though I don't train full time anymore, I'm able to do other sports and, um, you know, I don't get sore by just walking anymore. Okay. <laughs> That's right. Now... So would you encourage your kids now to explore all different sports yeah, and find what they want to absolutely. gravitate my, my towards? Son, he bike, my son's nine, and we bike together a couple of days a week. He plays tennis, and he, lo- he loves all sorts of sports. My, my youngest is only three, so he's too young right now. My daughter plays tennis. Um, but I definitely encourage um, them not only, not only to make them better athletes, but I feel like better, the more sports you play, it just makes you a better person. It, it makes you more outgoing. You, you meet more people. Um, so I definitely, even though I'd love my son to uh, be, take cycling serious one day, I'm not going to push him early on, and I want him to experience all sports now. One of the best riders in the world right now, a really good friend of mine, Greg Van Avermont, um, you know, he was a uh, very one uh, top ranked junior soccer player his whole growing up from from five to 18 years old and would ride on occasion and then at 18 he started taking cycling more serious and now he's the number one rider in the world so it's interesting people have different paths and that's um, right it's it's probably good to experience other sports growing up now was there a particular ride that you distinctly remember as a kid where it hit you this is my passion i want to be a professional cyclist um, a particular ride, uh, that, that'd be tough to, to say. I know there's a, a couple instances where were real wake-up calls for me. Uh, when, I was eight, uh, when I was 8 to 12, I basically won every race I did. I had, like, no competition. I would win in every race I entered. And then at 13, I went out west to race in Colorado at altitude with juniors kind of my level, and I just got my ass kicked. You know, I had no idea. I'd never really climbed a real mountain being from New York. And all of a sudden here I'm climbing a mountain at altitude and I'm, I'm getting dropped. I go, well, okay, this is a whole different level here that I'm not used to. But 
those type of moments really help inspire you and figure out, okay, what, you know, what do I need to do to be better? I need to do more climbing. I need to get out in altitude when I race altitude. You don't know that as a kid. So those are learning experiences for sure. Now at that time, you know, cycling was not by American standards, a popular sport uh, when you were growing up. So were there challenges that you faced as a teenager, you know, wanting to have this dedicated dedication towards your sport, but also I mean, you're a teenager trying yeah. to fit in, you know, Absolutely. as well. There what was, type there of was, challenges did you face? There was a lot of challenges. In fact, I was telling my kids about it the other day. It was There was like one year in high school where I was kind of definitely like the loner, like the biker. When I was a, when I was a freshman in high school, I was friends with all the seniors because they were, some of them were into cycling and they appreciated what I did. And then they all graduated. And then all of a sudden I had like a year where I didn't have any friends and I would just be <laughs> riding my bike and nobody knew anything about it. Um, so that was a, a tough kind of learning uh, year for me. But then the high school really got behind me and I actually, they actually got me a varsity letter for cycling, which is, you know, for, I think probably first and only ever at Farmingdale High School, um, which was kind of cool. They honored me and really showed an appreciation for what I was doing. At that point, I was racing over in Europe and doing national team racing and racing for, you know, the, the U.S. national team. So they really appreciated it and that was, um, that was great for me. Yeah. So eventually there was a tipping point where now you become accepted. Yeah. Basically. Even though, at that point, nobody really understood cycling, but they knew that, you know, I was racing in the top, top level and it was great to see, um, the sport grow. And, you know, even though a lot of Americans don't fully understand cycling yet, but they, they all know about the Tour de France and they all watch it in the month of July. And, um, so this is definitely a, a much more, a, a much bigger appreciation for the sport now. So how often do you have to explain all right, this is how cycling works. It's an individual sport, but yeah. it's a team approach. Um, well, <laughs> now less and less. Back then, a lot. But yeah, a lot, a, there is a, a much more um, knowledge about the sport nowadays. So you finally make that transition to be a professional cyclist. And your first race in Italy, you're at the start line. What's going through your mind at that point? When my when I first turned pro, yeah, uh, well, I was just I was super excited. I remember it was the um, the last Italian races in uh, September, and I've read about these races, and here I am lining line up with my heroes, and I was just, uh, you know, I just wanted to give it everything I had. I wasn't I wasn't gonna. I made the breakaway in my first race as a pro in a, a race called Piemonte, uh, which was a big deal back then. I was a nineteen or twenty year old kid, and. Um, for me, that whole for the whole first year was just excitement and just being really appreciative that I made it to that level. Was there added pressure that you made the transition to a pro level now versus so definitely being classified added, as an amateur? Well, as a young rider, you don't get as much pressure um, as the, the more kind of established riders. But the pressure came from having to move away from home and you know, finding an apartment in Como, Italy, not speaking the language and trying to figure it out. There wasn't internet back then or very, very little internet. Um, you know, I remember having to go outside and save a bunch of change to call my parents or to call your girlfriend. It was, I mean, totally different. Nowadays you can FaceTime and you have everything. It's, it's easier. So it was, it was tough then to, uh, to really adapt to that different culture. Yeah. Now, how long did it take you to feel comfortable, you know, in this new environment? I took, Several years to feel yeah. comfortable. Yeah, there was the first three years were really tough. Um, always counting days being away from home. So it took probably about three to five years, maybe more than five years, where I was uh, fully comfortable in Europe. And then after that, I really became comfortable and enjoyed the culture. I moved down to Spain where I, I speak Spanish fluently and 
um, then I started really enjoying uh, being over there. Yeah. Were there other people that were going through the same thing that you could lean on? Oh yeah. You know, we to, had, to, so to I share had roommates. The, experiences? the first couple of years I had roommates and we had, um, I, I always rode for American teams. So that was helpful. Even though when you ride for American team, doesn't mean that they're all, you have all Americans on the team, but you have a majority of the Americans and usually they were closer to my age. So uh, that was helpful. Now, as we mentioned, you know, there's an individual component to cycling, mm-hmm. but there's also this team uh, approach, so to speak. And, you know, it's very similar to, you know, football and basketball that you still have a, a star on the team. Uh, so how is it in cycling, though, that the alpha person is identified? We know in other sports, it's usually the person with the most talent. Mm-hmm. But is that the same for cycling? So how is it identified that this is going to be the guy that we're going to uh, well, be the lead dog, so to speak? So it's, it really depends on the race. I mean, if it's a Tour de France, then you, you have to have a guy that's proven track record of racing for three weeks in a row um, every day, you know, not having bad days. Uh, for me, it was I was really good at helping others in the Tour de France. Um, and, and on my day, I can have a really good stage as well. But my strong suits was the one-day races like the Paris-Roubaix or the Tour of Flanders where it's a 150-mile day and it's super intense. You can't make a mistake. Um, positioning is a huge, huge factor in the race. And um, that's what I was good at. But So it really just depends on the race day and where you're racing and if it's hilly or if it's flat. Um, so cycling, even though you have one leader for one race, it doesn't mean that that same guy is going to be the leader for the next race. And was that a difficult process if there were times where your ego is, I mean, you're very talented, say, no, I'm, I feel I've got it. I'm the lead dog. Um, not so much for me. I, I always kind of, I really, I really enjoyed my role of being the leader for the classic, the one day races. And I knew, even though a lot of people always ask, why isn't, why aren't you trying to go more for the Tour de France? I knew that like my role was really coveted and a very difficult role and I was very good at it. And it didn't really, to me, it didn't really matter what other people thought that maybe they thought I wasn't trying hard enough. I just, I know the sport so well and I know exactly what I need to do. And um, I never really had those issues uh, in at the Tour de France. And so do you feel that because of you knew your role, did that help your longevity in the sport itself? Definitely, yeah, it definitely helped my longevity, helped my demand to be on teams as well because the teams knew that, the teams knew how important my role was. The riders knew how important my role was. So um, I really had uh, the luxury of being able to pick and choose any team I wanted to be on, my schedule. So that, even though the outside world doesn't really see that, as a rider in, in, your, in your, um, your teammates and your peers, they, they, they know that and they see that. And um, it's, it's a good position to be in. Yeah, for sure. One of the other things that uh, I think is unique from the cycling perspective is that we've talked about it's a it's a true individual performance, but there's this teamwork approach and there's obviously a strategic plan that goes into it. Uh, But there's also this big component of it's truly an endurance type Mm -hmm. of sport. And it leads to what I picked up in your book, this overarching theme that comes up and it's the theme of pain Mm -hmm. and you even quote in the book who could tolerate the most suffering was the race within the race Mm -hmm. so how does that pain invoke so much joy for you (laughs) well it's i wouldn't say it's joy i think the pain and the suffering is 
is a way to grow. Um, uh, in a race, it's your job and you're not really enjoying it, but you know that you've put everything you can into being as strong as possible that race and so has everybody else. So the differences are so small at that level that it's like, okay, well, the only thing I can do different right now is perhaps suffer more than this person next to me. Because <laughs> you know that they're, the thing that gives you comfort is you know that they're in as much pain as you are. So it's just a question of who's going to be able to last longer. And I also picked up a quote that you mentioned in the day that you, uh, you know, donned the yellow jersey. You mentioned that uh, I'm not even feeling the chain. Mm -hmm. So explain that. What does that mean? Uh, it's just a saying we had um, just amongst buddies that uh, the chain is what what guides the gears. Um, so when on a really good day, you're not really feeling the gears, you're just pedaling so, so smoothly and so efficiently that the bike is just going forward and you're not really feeling the, the pain as much as on your bad days. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And how, how often could you pick up on how another rider was based on their body language how did you pick up on that with other riders Usually, because think, there was that strategic yeah, plan well you race it at the, at the top level at the top races uh, in the finals you usually end up with a similar group of riders 10 20 guys and you get to know them pretty well um although nowadays if you watch somebody like chris Froome, the tour de france he always looks like he's about to explode and he, i think he really fakes out his competition a lot so okay. i think that um riders are starting to pick up on that and trying to either show, uh, show, try to pretend they're suffering a lot more than they are uh, to make it more difficult to really judge when, when is a good moment to attack. So it's, it's tough to say. I, I felt like I, had a, I usually had a pretty good read on how other riders were feeling, but it's by far never, never was a perfect uh, assumption. So when you put on that yellow jersey we just mentioned, was that the pinnacle for you in terms of I was, your cycling well, It was career? only one day in the yellow, 2000, yeah. uh, 2000 when was it, 2006. Six. Um, it was, it was a really special moment, um, but it wasn't, you know, there was other moments that were big, um, even, even moments that I didn't win races. Like when I got second place at Paris Bay, the best ever American has ever done, even though of course I wanted to win, but you know, I was amongst the top three guys in the world that day. And, um, on, in one of the arguably the hardest race in the world. Um, so moments like that are, you know, special as well. And what about how it feels to hear Lance Armstrong say that George Hincapie is the greatest teammate in the world? Hmm. How does that make you feel? feels good. I mean, like I said, the, my peers and my teammates, whether it was you know, that team with Lance or with Cadell or with Condor, um, they know how, how important my role was. And to hear them say things like that is definitely a good, good feeling. Yeah, I can imagine. Now, obviously, there's the whole aspect of performance-enhancing drugs mm -hmm. within cycling, and your story is well-documented yep. um, from that perspective. But to, how did your marriage to Melanie and having your first child, Julia, affect your decision to move towards that clean racing and then try to instill that in these younger riders that you've talked about? Well, it was definitely ongoing, and there was some some big moments in cycling where you know, even though cycling was so messed up back then that a lot of the riders were just starting to get sick of hearing about it and, and being part of it. Um, so, so having Julia and having my wife was just kind of part of the process for me where I was like, hey, I'm at a level, at a point now in my career where I can be very influential and I can be, you know, a positive influence for change. And I don't really care how it's going to affect 
you know, my stance in the Peloton, I'm just, I'm going to try to make a change within the Peloton and, um, having a, having a child really just helps enforce that because you can, you can, you can really stand up for uh, an important change and, and be part of a, you know, a historical change for cycling. And a lot of people only want to talk about how bad cycling was then, but they don't want to talk about like how much it's actually changed. And it's, if you get like one random report where somebody went positive or something, it's like, oh, cycling's the same. Well, it's not anymore. It's like, it's the minority now. Back then it was the majority. So there's been a huge shift in cycling and cycling has led the way in terms of testing and um, cultural influences to really help change the sport. And I think is I know that it's leading the way in all sports for uh, for making the change. Of course, it'll never be perfect, nor will any sport be, but it has done a, uh, above, it's gone above and beyond what any other sport has done so far. So at this point, are you pleased with how the sport is Absolutely. transitioning into this new era? And I, I feel like I can talk about that better than anybody because I was part of the past where it was really messed up, and then I, w- I was part of the, the clean team generation where I watched riders like, you know, Cadell Evans, Mark Cavendish, you know, win some of the biggest races in the world totally clean, which was not possible back then. So, uh, and a lot of people, they don't want to believe that, they don't want to accept that, but I, wit- I got to witness it. And a lot of my uh, friends and teammates now have also witnessed it. And, you know, we know, we were inside the Peloton, we know how much has changed and uh, we, can, we can, you know, put our hand in the fire and say this sport has definitely changed for the better. How difficult was it with all of this focus on the sport and you know that you're in the process of cleaning it up, but there's still those negative Mm. people out there just bashing cycling because I I would feel that it has to be somewhat frustrating because I look at it and it seems to me that it would be the guy calling you a bum Mm -hmm. or your peers a bum, a cheater, Mm -hmm. and it's the same guy who's cheating on his expense report yeah. at his company yeah, and yeah. there's no difference but you're held to this such a huge yeah. standard explain yeah those i mean there's, there's no doubt that was that was really tough um you know you get to you get to a point where you you start reading all this stuff and you, you drive yourself crazy um, but at the same time it actually makes you a lot st- stronger i believe i felt like when i was at the tour de france and the team bus and you're, you know, sitting with your teammates and the story's breaking and you have like a hundred journalists outside waiting for you to comment on that. There's not much tougher things in life to deal with that. So I feel like I can get into any situation. It's made me a much stronger, you know, more focused person being able to have gone through those, those times and really helps you focus on what's important and who's important in your life and, um, people that really know who you are. That's what's important. If people can just throw, you know, derogatory comments at you all day long and it's a matter of just being able to you know what they don't know who i am they don't know the whole story um so they can't really uh, comment um in, intelligently um so it's just a matter of just ignoring it and you know focusing on the positive things and so when you look back at you know that whole point do you feel that you actually even needed those peds at the time well, back back then, that's a, that's a great question. It was so rampant that it would have been hard to to really make it to really make it at that level. I mean, as a 22 year old kid, you're or 25 year old kid, you're you're spiking six hours a day. You're sacrificing. You're dieting. You're 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 doing everything you can for the sport, and you're the worst guy in the peloton, and people are laughing at you and they're talking. <laughs> it wasn't possible to perform okay. at that level back then. Um, and that's what's so good about now. Now it's, it's all about training, nutrition, 
focusing on the bike and now you can perform now you can win without it so it's, for me it's that's part of the reason why i have my own team now too because i really believe in the sport i believe in how you know every everything it's gone through um and it's definitely on the right path and i can look at my son in the eye and say you know what if you ever become a cyclist you won't have to make those decisions again yeah they, they won't be faced yeah, with exactly. that type of dilemma yeah. Now, so where is the status with your team right now? Because I know you're trying to get to uh, having a pro team. Where does that stand right now? So we have a pro, we just uh, got the license uh, last week. We got a pro continental license. So there's three different um, tiers in, in, in pro cycling. It's a continental tier, which we were last year, uh, pro continental, which we are this coming season, and a pro tour, which does the Tour de France and the big grand tours. So we're kind of halfway there to the, my ultimate goal is to have a team in the Tour de France. Now, how important is it for you to continue bringing focus to the cycling community here in Greenville, South Carolina? So that's a great question. Part of our platform for building the team is we have the upstate of South Carolina has some of the best cycling in the world. And a lot of people don't know that. And, and cycling has done so much for this community. So my part of the platform for this team is being able to say, say this team is from South Carolina, even though we have riders from all over the world, but we're based here in, in Greenville, South Carolina, and all of our riders can come here and train and, you know, not miss a beat. They can do mountains, they can train on roads that aren't traffic-y, um, and really help influence other younger riders to get on the bike as well. So we want this team to not only become a Tour de France team, but a Tour de France team that is from Greenville, South Carolina, and really help promote all the, um, the great things this community has to offer. And the other side is obviously Hincapi Sportswear. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at where you are in, in business, what are some of the things that you've been able to learn from sports that you are applying in your business? Well, that's, um, I'm still, I'm, I'm learning, I'm learning every day. Um, you know, the cycling was very tough physically. But in terms of being able to plan, it was a lot easier because all you had to do is train and rest and you can pretty much guess what kind of form you're going to be at at the races where business is just so many different factors is relationships are so important and I'm enjoying the learning process. It's really become a, you know, a challenge of mine and, um, I try to instill my, whatever I learned, my, my dedication and my, my, my focus on the bike. I'm trying to bring it over to the business world and, uh, I'm fortunate that I have a great partner and my brother and I run Hinkabi Sportswear together and we do everything uh, together as a business now. So um, I have a great team now to be able to help support the growth of Hinkabi Sportswear. Any significant future plans that you guys want to focus on with Hinkabi Sportswear? Uh, so we have, a, we have an events company um, that's, that's um, part of separate from Hinkabi Sportswear, but it's basically the same company. They feed off each other. And we have our big grand fundo here in, in, uh, in Traveler's Rest up here near the hotel, um, which we're now expanding to Chattanooga. Um, so our events company is, is becoming a big focus of ours as well. And we brought in almost 2,500 cyclists this year from all over the, the country, world, um, uh, which was a great a great event for the community and really helped showcase the the area to cyclists that would probably have never ever heard of this area or have come here to ride. Now they come here and they fall in love with it. So um, that's kind of part of our, our next phase is try to grow the events company and do more grand fundos across the, uh, the country. And what about focusing on bringing more competitive races to Greenville? That's not really our thing. We, yeah. we, the grand fundo for us is kind of the grand fundo is like a marathon. You have some of the best runners in the world line up with recreational runners. That's what's so unique about a Grand Fondo is you have, we bring in pros, some of the best pros in the world, you know, five or ten of them, and then the rest are just 
you know, weekend riders like myself now that just want to challenge themselves and get, get the best time with the climb and they want to, you know, meet new people, stop at the rest stops. It's all about, um, uh, social bike riding. I think that's kind of like where the big, big, uh, growth is for, uh, helping grow the sport here in, in, uh, in, the, in the upstate. Now you say social riding, but I know you're very competitive. So <laughs> how hard is it at times <laughs> to be on the bike and not yeah. <laughs> put it into that next um, gear? So I, I'm, I'm competitive, but I'm also not uh, delusional anymore. I'm not a pro <laughs> cyclist anymore. So if I'm, if I'm riding with pros, I know that that's what they do for a living and they can kick my butt at, at, at any point. My only goals are in cycling in goal. My only goals in cycling are that my, my weekend warrior buddies can never beat me because <laughs> then I'll never hear the end of it. But I, you know, I know that, uh, you know, to be a pro cycling, like I said earlier, it's life consuming and, you know, that's not my life anymore. I, I ride, you know, four or five days a week for, for fun with buddies and to keep healthy and keep in shape, but not to be able to, to race anymore. And what's big, what's been the biggest advancement in cycling that you've seen? The training. Uh, now, uh, you can measure your, your training. You know exactly um, what kind of power output you do on a daily basis. You can upload it to your, your Training Peaks uh, um, software after a training ride. Your coaches can analyze your training and really help you um, set periods throughout the year when, when you want to be your best. I mean, so the training has really been uh, the biggest. Uh, and, uh, and the equipment. I mean, bikes are lighter, stronger now. They're more aerodynamic. So everything, every year you get something some um, breakthrough in the in the bicycle industry that uh, is really making the bikes faster and lighter and stronger. Yeah. So could there be an argument there too that like, twenty years ago we didn't have this type of technology from a bike performance standpoint? Oh, so twenty years ago there were steel bikes, heavy, and now you can get bikes that weigh fourteen pounds and uh, and they're as strong as steel bikes were. So um, the, the technology is definitely advancing there. So do you think that? If I had this type of equipment when I was 19 to 25 years old, would it have been different? Possibly. I mean, there's, uh, there's something to say about that. Now, also, not only the equipment, but you can, you know, you can really, the trainers, the, the, the best guys in the world are going to altitude, you know, 10 days uh, every, every, they go to altitude for 10 days every four to six weeks. So the, the train has become so focused on, on um on being ready for the certain periods of the year that um you know there isn't there isn't much guesswork left they know exactly what they need to be ready for the month of july or the month of april and um everything is catered towards that and was there ever times where you were real fearful on a bike i mean because of the speeds you were going and the conditions that you were visibly or no. physically that you felt I'm, I'm scared here. Um, yeah, but you think about it afterwards and okay. the race is like all about, you know, not, not losing focus. And then you think afterwards, like, and especially as you got older and you had kids, you're like, I can't believe I did that. Um, my last, my last tour de France, I crashed the day before in the, on the Tourmalet in the Pyrenees and I had road rash. And that was the one big difference as I got older was that it was tougher for me for to recover from crashes. You know, everything else, like I really, I felt like I was, I remained strong and I was able to perform as good as ever, but crashing really affected me more. So the next day we started up this six mile climb and I was like 10% climb and I was struggling. I was in the back group. We got to the top of the mountain and it was foggy. You can only see about 10 meters ahead of you. And we're going down this mountain 
And the only way you knew there was a turn coming, you didn't see the police motor, motorbike, the red light come on, and that's when you knew you had to hit the brakes. You could have fallen off a cliff, but there wasn't red lights coming on. And that's when I knew, I was like, okay, my time is up. I'm happy that <laughs> this is my last sort of friends. I'll never have to deal with this again. I understand. That yeah. would be that would be scary for sure. Well, wrapping things up here, uh, George, I wanted to go back to now what you're doing with this team that you've got and you know what you've been able to do with the sport and the wisdom that you're sharing with not only your team, but other riders and, you know, the, the concept of riding clean and all of that and just the words of wisdom that you're sharing. So what words of wisdom and advice are you giving these young riders and just in general about life? Well, that's a, that's a great question. I, you know, like I mentioned earlier, the sport is in a much different place now and really even though it's in a much different place, the, the work ethic is, is the same, I mean, or even greater, because if you want to make it to the top level, there really isn't anything else but cycling. Like, you have to focus everything on your training and your recovery. And obviously, balance is very important, but um, at, the, at, that, at this level, it's like you have to train so hard and be so determined and so, so willing to, um, to put all the social things aside and just focus on the bike that... Um, for me, it's important to to instill the hard work, hard work ethic in the kids and um, help them become better cyclists. And has there been any words of wisdom or advice that you've leaned on over the years that have helped you? Yeah, definitely. Let me think about this, the way to, to put it. But I had, a, I had a, um, a performance coach, a mental performance coach that I worked with for several years that really the one thing that, was, that stood out to me was to... To, to help block doubtful thoughts during moments of, you know, when you really need to get uh, the, the, the best performance out of your body. And that's a real, you know, that's, that can be relevant in all works of life. You know, whether you're, you can't sleep or you're, you're nervous about doing a, a presentation. You know, if you can, if you can stop those, those negative thoughts from entering your mind, it does wonders. And, you know, I still, I still have to remind myself constantly to, to do that, but, and I try to instill that in my kids, um, but that was a really important lesson for me. One thing's for certain in professional cycling, it's not about just going and getting on a bike and training and making sure you're preparing the right way. It's about mental toughness and being able to push through the pain and suffering. And that is no doubt an overarching theme for cyclists. And if you want to read more about that, make sure you read George's book, The Loyal Lieutenant. And he goes into great detail about specific races, about different chapters in his life. But the overarching theme is about being mentally tough to push through the pain to excel to that next level. And I just thoroughly enjoyed George's transparency about the doping situations and what he was trying to do in terms of cleaning up cycling and where he sees the future of cycling. And I do believe it's a bright future because people like George are really focused focusing on doing things in a positive manner rather than focusing on the negative that was the perception of years ago. Let's focus on the positive. And he's really doing great things for the community here in Greenville, South Carolina. He's so active and obviously with Hincappy Sportswear located and headquartered here in Greenville, he continues to help the community thrive from that standpoint. And if you're traveling to Greenville, South Carolina, make sure 
sure you take the opportunity to stay at George's Hotel. And it's right at the base of the Blue Ridge Mountains, so it's a beautiful backdrop. And the name of the hotel is Hotel Domestique. It's a great modern boutique hotel, and it also has a fantastic restaurant called Restaurant 17. And I promise you, you won't be disappointed. Well, that finishes up episode 40. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Take Sports. Thanks for listening.